Hello, greetings. Thanks for your interest in spiritual matters. My name's Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. Among the various lies that our culture tells us is the big one of everything being about us and our ability to find happiness as individuals. Uh, it's part of our culture's god of the cult of the individual. It's something to which our political and philosophical processes have been working toward. You have two political parties today, and in some ways they want to restrict liberty, in some ways they want to uh, give less government regulation and, and more freedom, and what ends up happening is is that both sides tend to get more of the freedom uh, part of their agenda passed. Uh, we see it also in the sexual ethic of our age, the idea that you can do whatever you want as long as there's consent, and the idea anymore that somebody would come in and say that there's certain things you shouldn't be doing, uh, is, is, it seems to be a terrible constriction on, on human freedom and flourishing. It's not just in terms of the politics and the culture and even sexuality. It's also at work in terms of commitment to the common good, uh, payment of taxes for common services, and really an overall skepticism and hostility, not just toward the government, but toward all kinds of social, cultural, and even religious institutions. Uh, to the point now where you see participation in church declining, but also in civic organizations declining. Uh, we see the bonds of, of relationships dissolving all the time in front of us. Now, in many respects, this isn't new. The goal of the middle class, in many ways, is to prove self-sufficient. It means they don't require the family or government assistance that they would among the poor. It also uh, doesn't require the networking consistent with the wealthy. It's this idea, well, I have worked hard, I've built up this comfortable life that I enjoy. Now, those with eyes to see have watched the disintegration of community and communal bonds for at least 500 years. And as all things, it's been highly accelerated in our modern society. Never before have members of the same family lived so far apart from each other or move as frequently. Never before has so little confidence been placed in mediating institutions that convey a sense of community and meaning in life beyond our personal striving. But in all of this, as we have sought our freedom as individuals, are we really happier? If we find almost perfect personal satisfaction, do we really find it satisfying? Or is there still something that we lack? God, our Creator, expressed a great and profound truth in Genesis 2 and verse 18. It is not good that the man should be alone. Now, in context, you would go ahead and make a, uh, a woman for, for, for Adam, would make Eve, uh, and that's absolutely true. But the statement is not just about those in a marriage relationship. It's true in, in, in for everybody. We were not made to be in isolation. We were not made to be alone because we are made in the image of, of God in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And that God that we're made in the image of is one in three persons, who are one in relational unity, as we can see in John 17, 20 through 23. And so we are made to be in relationship with God, and we're also made to be in relationship with our fellow man. And despite the fact that our culture idolizes the Lone Ranger, uh, people have always functioned best and most effectively in community. And God has always called to himself a people, a plural people, a collective through whom he could manifest his glory is in Israel and now in the church. We might like our alone time, absolutely, but none of us want to always and truly be alone. 
We yearn to spend life in relationships. And so we do well to this end to explore how we can serve Jesus in relationships today. And what has Jesus said about how we serve him in specific relationships and to what end? What challenges do we find today in maintaining relationships uh, in ways that glorify Jesus? And how we can most effectively uh, suffuse our relationships with Jesus' light and lordship today? And we begin with a relationship which we most often associate with the term and the most intimate which is marriage, that God established a covenant of marriage as a proper quarters for the expression of sexual desire, for the production of offspring, and for continual mutual care. In Genesis 2.24, a man leaves father and mother, clings to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Uh, the, the, the erotic love poetry, the Song of Solomon, speaks to this. Matthew 19.4-6, Jesus says, What God has joined man is not to separate. In Hebrews 13 and verse 4, that marriage is beheld in honor among all, and its bed considered undefiled. In Malachi 2 and verse 14, Malachi is condemning some of the things Israel is doing, but he talks about how they have not been faithful to the wife of their covenant, the wife of their youth by covenant. And, and, and covenant is the right way to really look at marriage. Because throughout the scriptures, marriage is this very powerful metaphor in salvation history. Because throughout the prophets, you know, God speaks to Israel as a husband to his faithless wife. He's appealing for her to return aside from her adultery and her whoredom. In Hosea 1-3, through Ezekiel 16, many other passages. In fact, in Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel conceives the entire relationship between Israel and God in terms of preparation for marriage, for marriage, and then that Israel proved faithless in their adultery and whoredom. In the New Testament, much is made of Jesus as the bridegroom and the church as the bride. Sure, Ephesians 5, 22-33, which is a commonly cited passage in terms of this, but we also see it in Matthew 9, 15, Matthew 25, 1-13, Revelation 19, 6-10, and 21 in verse 9. And this leads us to this very powerful metaphor in Ephesians 5, uh, 31-32, and 32, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church, that just as there is the intimate union in marriage of a man and a woman, that there is this intimate relationship, oneness between Christ and the church. And it's a far more profound and deep uh, connection than we can even imagine. So whenever God is desired to communicate the type of intimacy in relationship that he wants to have with his people, to convey what covenant loyalty looks like in the face of faithlessness, to portray the ultimate goal of what God's doing in Christ, it's by means of this illustration of marriage. And so, when we look at all the passages in the New Testament that talk about how Husbands and wives serve Jesus in their marriage. Uh, all of this needs to be brought to bear about how powerful this is. And we have 1 Corinthians 7, Ephesians 5, 22-33, Colossians 3, 18 and 19, Hebrews 13, 4, and 1 Peter 3, 1-7. We've had opportunity to talk about many of these passages in more detail at other times. But for our purposes, it's important to notice that the marriage bed is undefiled. And that the husband's body is not his own, but his wife's. And the wife's is not her own, but her husband's. They ought not to deprive one another of each other. Uh, save for time dedicated to prayer. If the wife is to make the free will decision and offering to subject herself to her husband and to submit to him as the church does to Christ, if the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church, that he's a sacrifice for her willingly to endure suffering for and from her in patience, not responding with evil or defensiveness, but nourishing and cherishing her as his own flesh, as Christ does the church. These passages provide so much difficulty for us 
not based upon what they're really saying, though, but because of the distortions, abuses, and difficulties in application, both past and present. And we have to be honest, and we lament and mourn that for far too long Christians prove silent or complicit in cultures that have denigrated women as inferior to men and as second-class citizens. Uh, there's no justification for this posture in these passages. The closest, uh, the weakness in 1 Peter 3 and verse 7, uh, doesn't negate the equality of standing in Galatians 3.28, better understood in terms of handling precious objects versus everyday common ones. Um, so many caricature Paul's teachings as if they give license for abuse and for authoritarianism. Uh, they, they see these things about husbands and wives and think that this is some horribly abusive relationship. But really, when you look at what he says, there's no quarter for these kind of things because the husband's to love his wife as his own flesh. Abuse is therefore right out. But we also have modern distortions. It's not just distortions coming from uh, past bad behaviors. Uh, we have this idea now that commitment in marriage is only as long as love shall last. That means marriage relations often become essentially transactional. And marriage relationships in which far more is expected out of the spouse in terms of personal fulfillment and satisfaction than any human being could realistically provide. And a lot of problems that we have when we talk about marriage is because we talk in abstraction and generalities. And a lot of people want to look to the practical. Okay, okay, so this is what's true about marriage. What does it look like to serve Jesus in any given marriage? Well, there's a reason why abstraction and generalities are given. Uh, the scriptures speak in generalities, and no two marriages are exactly alike. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't say anything, because we can identify the extremes of abuse. We can see unloving spouses. We can see abusive spouses. We can see domineering authoritarian spouses. We can also see the opposite, completely disconnected spouses. Uh, all kinds of abuses can be seen. But we are in very dangerous waters if we start trying to presume that we can judge that a given husband is truly loving his wife or if a given wife is truly submissive to her husband. And I say that we are in dangerous waters, not because we can't see abuse, but because so many times our expectation of what uh, love and um, submissiveness look like are very much culturally conditioned and uh, personally conditioned based upon one's experiences. What headship and submission looks like will, to some degree, not all degree, but to some degree, uh, vary among Christian couples based upon the personality traits, the gifts, uh, the struggles and difficulties of each and both members, that you have different people, different personalities, uh, looking how they're going to work together. We do well to consider each in terms of what's been revealed. And we're going to start with the husband. He's a love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for. And a good question is to ask, therefore, what did the church do to Christ? Well, in, in Romans 5, uh, 6 through 11, Paul talks about how Christ died for us while we were still ungodly. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that he was given up as a sin offering. And so, in a very real way, we can all see ourselves as if we were in the crowd on that infamous day near the Passover in the year 30, uh, crying out, crucify, crucify him, to revile him. He saved others, he cannot save himself. And this is kind of leading to C.S. Lewis's comment that he wrote in The Four Loves, 
that this headship, then, is most fully embodied, not in the husband we should all wish to be, but in him whose marriage is most like a crucifixion, whose wife receives most and gives least, is most unworthy of him, is, in her own mere nature, least lovable. For the church has not beauty but what the bridegroom gives her. He does not find but makes her lovely. The chrism of this terrible coronation is to be seen not in the joys of any man's marriage, but in its sorrows, in the sickness and sufferings of a good wife or the faults of a bad one, in his unwearying, never paraded, care for or his inexhaustible forgiveness, forgiveness, not acquiescence. And so men do well to look at marriage to a degree like a crucifixion, not just in terms of absorbing pain and invective without responding in kind, but displaying that love does not seek its own but sacrificially yearning for the best for the beloved. The husband serves Jesus in his marriage by loving his wife independently of her performance, to accept her as she is, but willing to sacrifice anything and everything but the faith in order to see her grow in Christ, and as a person to love her especially at her most unlovable, to uphold that covenant commitment throughout life no matter what may come. One of the most beautiful expressions of the husband faithful to Jesus is less about the sappy expressions at a wedding, although those have their value and their benefit, but more the loving, tender care given by husband to his wife of many decades as she slips away in dementia and Alzheimer's or from cancer, so that she knows, despite all the pain, that she was loved and cared for no matter what. Or even if she can no longer know that she remains loved. It may cost almost anything. It may not provide much benefit. But that's what it looks like for a husband to serve his wife in his marriage. Now for the wife, she is to submit to her husband in all things as to the Lord, as the church does to Christ and to respect him. The initial reaction to this kind of thing is very understandable. He ain't Jesus. In fact, indeed, he ain't Jesus. In fact, in 1 Peter 3 and following, there are some for whom their husbands don't even serve or honor Jesus as Lord. So a Christian woman's husband will never earn, deserve, or merit her love, her submissiveness, her willingness to be his champion and cheerleader, to uphold him in honor and respect no matter what he may endure. But this is a free will offering that she is called to provide for him. For any marriage to work, really, each partner is going to have to sacrifice something of what they wanted in life so that they can join together and become one in a shared life. When you take any two objects and you collide them together and you create one out of them, you have a lot of friction, heat involved. Uh, But what you have then is nothing necessarily like what you had before. But we need to admit that sacrifices have almost always been greater for the women than men. And even if somehow we could achieve full equality in society, it would still most likely be greater for women. And that just needs to be honored and respected. Now, the wife may think she knows better. You know what? She just might. It's always very difficult to follow the leadership of another. But as it is with the church in Christ, so with wives and husbands. Because a husband who is undermined by his wife will not be able to grow and develop into effective shepherd of his household. The Christian wife is absolutely in a precarious position because she must and she should give some consideration to this stuff before marrying. And the people of God need to find ways to support women whose husbands are domineering, abusive, and things of that nature. And a Christian woman doesn't need to become a doormat to serve Jesus in her marriage. A wise husband will seek his wife's counsel and take it seriously. But the wife is called on to give the grace of following his lead, to uphold and honor him no matter what, to see what is honorable and good even in the midst of the most challenging circumstances. And again, 
uh, like with husband, so with wife. The most beautiful expression of that wife faithful to Jesus, not about the sappiness of the wedding, is very beautiful as that can be, but building him up in the midst of the great defeats in life, to remain faithful, committed, respectful, and honoring him even when his strength has failed, and when he cannot be what he wishes he could be for her. To give him a love and respect not dependent upon performance, a gift of love and respect offered independently of her husband's worthiness, that he knows that he is loved and respected no matter what. This level of commitment is very countercultural. It kind of grates on us a little bit because it's a very demanding sacrifice. And there's no guarantee that we're going to receive in kind what we are giving. But when you think about it, this is really what we're seeking in marriage. A partner with whom we navigate the storms of life. That one person on whom we can depend no matter what. This is why the betrayal of a spouse in adultery or abandonment is so profoundly painful. It's the ripping out of a part of you. A part of you that you had taken very, very seriously. And perhaps even for granted. For every understandable reason. And that's why it's so important for us to put Jesus at the center of our marriage relationship and use his example as a means by which we uh, embody him to one another uh, and to understand that just as he paid it all for his spouse, so we, in many ways, will have to pay dearly for ours. The next relationship that we are to consider is a family relationship. It still remains important in modern society, but it has lost its pride of place. In fact, it's very easy for people to just justify jettisoning off their family commitments in the name of self-advancement. But all the passages that speak about family speaks about the importance of honoring that shared bond of family. Matthew 15, 1-9, Ephesians 6, 1-4, Colossians 3, 20-21, and 1 Timothy 5, 3-16. Uh, other times also we've talked about this, uh, but for our purposes, the parents are to raise their children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord, in Ephesians 6, 3-4. And too often we look at this command didactically. We take the kids to church, we study the Bible at home, we read the Bible. But it really, it's a call to embody Jesus in the home, that we show them what it means to follow Jesus through our example and teaching. Children have great hypocrisy detectors, and they have the gift of innocence. They see what is real. Not just the pretense. A lot of hand-wringing has gone on about Proverbs 22.16, that turn up a child in the way he will go, and he will not depart from it when he is old. But uh, the number of exceptions is truly minuscule. Whatever you see reflected in your children as they get older is really what they saw embodied in the home. That a lot of time the children don't lie. And we need to understand that. That we can only serve Jesus as parents if we model Jesus to our children in word and in deed. And it, don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean that we're cool if we don't take him to church or if we don't study the Bible. I'm not trying to neglect that or say that's not important. What I'm trying to say is that that's not the whole of what Jesus intends for parents to do for their children. And children are to honor their parents in the Lord. And too often that command is seen is in terms of giving lip service respect. Yes, parents should certainly not be demeaned. But as Jesus makes clear in Matthew 15, to honor parents is to make provision for them in their old age. And we need to be honest, this is far easier for some children to do than for others. But the only qualifier that Paul gives is in the Lord. Whatever parents would have you do contrary to the will of Christ must not be obeyed. We must obey God rather than man in Acts 5.29. But there are a lot of parents who haven't acted in very honorable ways. 
and children are going to find it very hard to honor the kind of parent who hasn't been honorable in their conduct. But it is a free will offering that children are to offer. It's not dependent upon the worthiness of the parent. What it looks like to honor your father and mother may vary a little bit based upon circumstance, but we certainly cannot just jettison parents entirely because of pain, because of indifference, or to advance ourselves. Now, family members ought to provide for family members close and extended, according to 1 Timothy 5, 3-16. Family members can literally be a drag, but we need to do what we can do to provide for family members. The family members should see Jesus in us in word and deed, that we should serve Jesus in, our, in these relationships, even if they're not very strong, so we need to be loving and caring and charitable. Yeah, we need to maintain appropriate boundaries. We still must obey God rather than man if family puts us in a position to sin. That's the whole point in Matthew 10, 34-39, that uh, the people find that their enemies are in their own household. But we need to take care of our people according to the flesh. Yeah. We, we, we talk about this so many times, but why does family even exist? I mean, Israel was organized according to tribe, clan, and family. Family is taken for granted here in the New Testament. You know, there are the, you know, not suitable for work reasons why parents have children that, you know, it was a Friday night and things got crazy, right? But on a higher level, as God shared in love and relational unity and wanted to share that love with offspring, which is us, mankind, in Acts 17, uh, a man and woman fall in love and share in love, but want to expand and manifest that love in a child who is the composite of the man and the woman. I mean, it's a crazy thing, right, that a child has the DNA of his mom and his dad, that the love of the mother and father, or that moment joined, has led to a, a child who has uh, half of the genes of each. Now, most of us are concerned that the exact half that they got wasn't necessarily the greatest half, but hey, you know, they got their half us, and half our spouse, whether we want to recognize that many times or not, right? And in parenthood, one learns so much more about their Heavenly Father and learns a selfish love, to see one's own heart outside of the body, walking around, to know what it means to pour into another person so deeply that it could never be replenished, and yet be perfectly fine with it. And the goal of parenthood is not necessarily to have a successful, halfway decent kid who has kids themselves, you know, yay for grandkids, but really to share a relationship with them, even though that relationship changes. The child learns who they are in their family. They are to learn unconditional love and acceptance from their parents, and from them to be grounded in what relational unity looks like. The more they see Jesus in their parents, the more likely they will be to follow him. Family is to be there for you when no one else is, a place where you belong even if you're forsaken by others. Now, we may not be able to depend on this from others, but we ought to be this dependable for others of our family in Christ. And understood that some boundaries need to be established. There are some times where family uh, is so unhealthy that it causes one to fall into transgression in, in one way or another. And that's what we talk about, appropriate boundaries. But there, these commitments aren't to be just cast off flippantly. And that's why the church is reckoned as a household of God. That God is the Father. We can look at Christ as an elder brother. Fellow believers are brothers and sisters in Ephesians 2, 18-22, 1 Timothy 3, 15, other passages. Our spiritual families to be there for one another when nobody else is. A place of real and true belonging. Where anybody who is part of God can belong. And that we can depend on one another. And where we can find love and acceptance independent of our performance. That we in the church need to be our people. No matter what.
So there's the marriage relationship, there's the family relationship, and then there are friends. Friendship can become one of the great trials in life, ironically enough. As young people, we tend to make friends rather easily among our peers at school, or if we have common extracurricular practices. Even in colleges, we have opportunities to make friends among those that we share living spaces or classes or a major. But as we go off on our own, friendships seem harder to maintain and even harder to develop. That's why we have this new joke that uh, Jesus accomplished his greatest miracle, which was that he somehow maintained 12 friends in his 30s. Life without friends, though, can be very lonely. Life with friends is also no picnic. That the pain of betrayal from friends is very real. We can see that in Psalm 55, where David spoke of it, and Psalm 55 speaks to many people who uh, had a friend who betrayed them. Yet, Proverbs 18.24 speaks truth. To get many friends is to invite destruction, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And both sides of this statement are correct. A person who has many friends doesn't really have any friends because you just can't dig very deeply with a lot of people. If you have a wide number, it means that your relationships with them are very superficial. And in days of distress, it won't be enough to sustain you. What we yearn for in life is a friendship with a friend who is closer than a brother. A Jonathan for a David, based upon that great example in the Old Testament. That person in your life who has no real primal reason, no biological reason to be there for you, but who is there for you even when nobody else is. Or, as I'm told that the young kids now say, they're ride or die. Friendship is good. But unfortunately, in our modern world, friendship has become very transactional. We need good friends in life because we need companions who can speak truth to us, who care for us, who are not married or related to us. It's hard enough to be a husband or a wife, as, but it's nearly impossible to be a spouse and the major support system for the other person. Yet, in the high esteem of the individual and what benefits the individual, we tend to see that people are more than happy to be friendly with you and to seem like friends as long as they derive some benefit from the relationship. But if more demands are made in the relationship than what they're getting back from it, or if problems arise, all of a sudden those friends will say, yeah, we should really get together sometimes. And they never will. And it becomes very evident that even though you were dependable and you hoped there was dependability there, there really wasn't any. To serve Jesus among one's friends, we need to be the loyal, dependable friend. We need to be the friend we want to have. We need to embody Jesus to our friends as we embody him among anybody else. What is really, really compelling, in John 15 and verse 15, Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. And he said this after, he said, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. We need to love our friends like Jesus loved the apostles. Because Jesus here says, You're no longer servants, you are friends. And he says this very well knowing that within hours they will all scatter, that Peter will betray him in word, Judas will betray him in deed. And he will be left alone. And yet, he calls them friends. 
We need to commit to prioritizing those whom we deem our friends and to be open to cultivating new friendships. Friendships really prove difficult to maintain because we don't prioritize them as we do other commitments. Our friends ought to be able to trust that when we will be there for them no matter what. That even if we can't approve of their behaviors at times, they know that we love them and we seek their best interest, even and especially when they're not seeking their own best interest. Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends, and that needs to be our disposition, to be the friend that we need to have. We may never find the friend we need to have, although we should seek to do so, but we need to be that friend in as much as we have power to do so. As we've said, modern society has a very ambivalent posture toward relationships. Either society is exalting the individual in his or her agency, seeking my best life. Relationships are messy. They might provide some benefit or stability, but they can become very ugly and very draining. And that's why a lot of people convince themselves that life is better if they're relatively alone. But I'd like to suggest that our, great, our society's greatest illness is this ambivalence toward relationships, because far too many people are sacrificing their mental health, their life's meaning, and even their own lives on the altar of that cult of the individual. Let no one be deceived. We are not made to live alone, but to share life and relationships in marriage, in the family, and among friends. That relationships are messy, because people are messy. But who is our example but Jesus, who came and humbled himself, taking on humanity in its messiness, dying on account of and for all of that ugliness? He saw all that ugly, and he loved anyway. He felt the pain of, of betrayal and called his, them friends anyway. It's just profound. And that is why we need to embody Jesus in our relationships to glorify Jesus in them. That the husband loves his wife as Christ loved the church, sacrificially giving of himself, loving and cherishing her independently of her performance, committed through the good times and bad. That the wife will respect her husband, submit to him as the church does to Christ, trusting in him, building him up independently of his performance, committed in the good times and the bad. That each gives of him herself to the other and allows each to find rest in mutual love, acceptance, and commitment. That parents need to embody Christ to their children, that they will grow up to follow him. The children are to honor their parents and the great sacrifices they have made. To be there for their parents as their parents were there for them. That extended family ought to receive provision and support, because family is to be there for one another, no matter what. There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, and we ought to be that friend, to display Christ to our friends. Friendship is healthy and good, even in its ugliness. We can't do this on our own, and so we should be the friend we all want to have. And yes, in all of this we know that people fail in relationships. But God in Christ has not failed us. And he continues to show us his covenant loyalty as he does not just to us as individuals, but to his people together. And we can have this confidence that if God is for us, who can be against us? That nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord in Romans 8, 31-39. And that is why we embody Jesus in our relationships, that we trust God in Christ for strength and wisdom through his spirit to obtain eternal life and relational unity with God and with the people of God for eternity. We're again so glad that you've joined us. Hope that you benefited from this. If so, we encourage you to share it with friends and family. We'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast uh, wherever you found us on uh, iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you did. If you'd like to find us in more venues, please let us know. If you have some questions, comments, prayer requests, anything that we can do to be of service, please reach out to us at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org or on our social media. We again thank you. Have a great day.